0: Okay, well, Psalm 12 tonight, I've titled the message here, Ungodly Speech Versus God's Word. Uh, It begins here, the heading of the psalm is, To the Chief Musician on an Eight-Stringed Harp, a psalm of David. Psalm 12, like many other psalms written by David, does not have a specific occasion uh, that we know of. It's just general. Uh, It definitely has a setting of oppression by the wicked who have uh, the prevailing upper hand. Uh, The concern is not so much direct physical affliction as it is the damage that they are doing with their lying and deceitful mouths. David notes that this psalm is addressed to the chief musician, evidently intending that it be used for corporate worship. Perhaps this is why he keeps it general, uh, not mentioning a specific occasion or setting which would allow it to be applied just generally. I find it interesting that there are churches that are non-instrumental, uh, thinking it to be more spiritual. I guess if you don't have any musical instruments. Actually, the church I grew up in was that way for many years. We didn't have any any musical instruments. Always wondered why. Uh, nobody seemed to know, but anyway. Uh, but you know, I just wonder what they do with a psalm like Psalm 12. Uh, which specifically calls for the use of musical instruments of one type or another. Uh, This mentality just strikes me as very legalistic, really not spiritual at all. Uh, David writes to the chief musician. First clue that this has music in view, right? What what are you you addressing the chief musician for if it has nothing to do with music, right? So that's first clue. And then it says on an eight-string harp. Second clue. Right? Uh, That this has music in view. So my advice to the non-instrumental folks is read the heading of the psalm. Read the heading of the psalm. You don't even have to get to the psalm. Just read the heading of the psalm. And uh, I think that's totally misguided. Well, Psalm 12 is another psalm of David. Uh, We know that David wrote at least half of the 150 psalms that we have in the book. And you'll note on the overhead uh, the theme and the outline. Uh, The theme is ungodly speech versus God's word. And then the outline, uh, we have in verses 1 and 2, the language of the wicked. Verses 3 and 4, prayer for God's intervention. Ask God to do something about this. And then uh, verse 5, God's promise to intervene. Verses 6 and 7, the pure words of the Lord, which is in contrast to the, the wicked words of the ungodly. And then finally, uh, verse eight, prevailing wickedness. So let's pick it up, verse one. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. You don't have to wonder what's on David's heart. I mean, it's right out the gate, right? Help. Uh, That's the driving thrust of this prayer. Help. Lord, we need help. I need help. Uh, This is a great prayer, by the way. Uh, we constantly need help, and uh, the godly look to the one who can help. I mean, God's always in a position to help. You need to look to him for help. I remember you know, my grandfather, he was a great big guy. I, I, my grandmother was a little woman. My grandfather, this is on my mom's side, was a great huge guy, I and mean, he could tell stories. I mean, people were afraid of him. He was such a big guy. But uh, he, uh, as he got older, he really struggled, you know, with getting weaker and weaker and he said, "These are dying days," and they were, and they were tough days. But one day, one day he fell in the kitchen, and he couldn't get up. He said, "It came to me. I should ask God to help me get up." <laughs> he said, "So he asked God to help him get up, and he was able to get up. You know, just a simple thing like that. Uh, help, help, Lord. Whatever the help is that you need, ask God to help you. Uh, that's what David's doing here." Uh, help Lord. Lord here is Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh is the sacred name for God, meaning the unchanging God, the loyal God, the loyal covenant-keeping God, the God who never changes. Uh, That's the idea. Well, the concern that precipitates this cry for help is that the godly are disappearing from the scene. Uh, The godly are also called the faithful here. They're becoming fewer and fewer in this society that David was a part of. Uh, perhaps they were going underground because the wicked were becoming so prevalent. And, you know, sometimes that's okay, we got to just kind of disappear from the scene so much so that Elijah would say, Lord, I alone am left. God says, No, I got 7,000 people. And, and Elijah could have said, Well, where are they? Oh, they're hiding in the bunkers. <laughs> where are they? That's a good question. Where are they? Well, they were there. But uh, who knows? Uh, David definitely senses that the godly man ceases. The faith will disappear. You don't see them around. They're not taking a stand. Uh, the ungodly are prevailing. Not, not the godly here. Uh, they're becoming fewer and fewer, the godly. And boy, can we relate to this, right? We used to have in the United States what was called the moral majority. I don't know if that was ever true, but call it, it was enough that we could call it the moral majority. Well, nobody claims that anymore. Nobody claims that anymore. Forget the idea of a Christian majority. Other than perhaps in name only, nominalism is, you know, okay. But uh, every time in recent years, when they take a poll, there are fewer and fewer that claim to be Christian. Like every year, this is the the direction. The trend is downward. Help, Lord. They say that nature abhors a vacuum. Certainly, when there is a void in godliness, uh, uh, you can be sure that Satan will fill it with wickedness. Uh, this was David's concern, and hence his cry for help. Well, when the wicked are in control, what can the righteous do? I read that somewhere recently, right? You did too, maybe, maybe last week in Psalm 11, right? Yeah, that was the cry in Psalm 11. Well, they can pray to the one who is sovereign, who can do something about it. That's what David did. And here specifically his complaint was this, verse 2. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. He's got a problem with what they're saying. In general, David has liars all around him. Uh, He lived in a society full of liars. Perhaps David wrote this when he was on the run from King Saul. That's one of the guesses that's out there, but we don't really know. Uh, He had the official government after him for 10 to 15 years of, of his life before he ever became king. And I'm sure there was a lot of talk about David. Uh, Very probably much of it was of the nature described here. But again, we don't know the specific occasion for the writing of the psalm. He says they speak idly. Uh, This is also translated as they speak falsehood, as we have like in the New American Standard. Uh, It's a serious matter to speak falsely of someone. Uh, Deuteronomy 5.20 You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. With flattering lips, he says. They use flattering lips. Flattery is an interesting thing. Uh, It's really false praise for the purpose of manipulating someone. There's different ways to manipulate people. And flattery is a technique of of, uh, manipulation. Uh, It insincerely tells people what they want to hear. But it is totally manipulative. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to be manipulated. Do do you? I doubt it very much whether you do. Um, People do this in all sorts of ways, uh, but one way they manipulate is through flattery. They butter you up with words to manipulate you. And David says, with a double heart they speak. In other words, they're two-faced. They say one thing to your face and another thing behind your back. Uh, They are totally untrustworthy, totally disloyal. There's no genuine transparency, no honesty from these folks. They're two-faced liars. Boy, that can can really hurt. That can really do damage. I mean, that's what David said. I need help with these people. One of the greatest things that hurt David, perhaps more than any other, as I read through the Psalms, was the wicked speech that people used against him. I mean, in the Psalms, he refers to this again and again and again. Very hurtful. You know that old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? That's a total myth. Some of the most damaging things in the world are words. They cut deep. They do great damage. I don't know if you can see this. The most painful scars are often invisible Etched in the soul by cruel words. Boy, that is true. Very true. So, what does he say? Verse 3: May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. David here has a very specific prayer. He asks that God may intervene and cut off all flattering lips. You know, those people, oh, they're talking all nice to David, but then when they go behind his back, whether it's uh, to King Saul and his men or his henchmen, whoever it might be, oh, they're just trashing him. Cut off flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. The idea of cut off is to destroy. The sense is a call for God to wipe them out. They are flattering manipulators, and they are arrogant. They talk big, and they have an attitude to go with it. Verse 4, here's their arrogance. Uh, they speak proud things. What kind of proud things? Verse 4, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? While we're in charge here. These are arrogant braggarts that think through deceptive lying and manipulative flattering they will prevail. They really believe that they're going to have their way over David. And again, it makes sense perhaps this is when he's on the run. And proud things would be, you know, he's never going to recover. There's No way he's going to make it. He's never going to be the king. That's very arrogant because it speaks against what God has said when he had David anointed. David was God's anointed, which was generally well known long before he actually became king. So in effect, to try and take David out was really to take on God, which is a very arrogant thing to do. Now, they don't think anyone can stop them from their evil speech and their designs. Uh, They arrogantly say, who is Lord over us? This is really a lordship issue. They don't recognize any authority over them, including that of God. They don't think they're accountable to anyone. In doing so, they really were defying the sovereign authority of God himself. Now, it's interesting. Their their lips, their mouth, their tongue, uh, that's really what David is addressing here. And uh, it's interesting what the Lord says about uh, the the mouth and what comes out of the mouth. In Matthew 12, Jesus says to those wicked religious leaders, brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, The heart, what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. And he says there, as he goes on in verse 36, 37, but I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. What comes out of the mouth tells on the heart. Pride talks big now, but come judgment day, these people will be silent as a stone. When the record of their words will be made the basis of their judgment. Well, for us as true believers, uh, the answer to this question is easy, right? Who is Lord over us? Uh, We know who that is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He bought us with his blood. We belong to him. We are his slaves. True believers are those who call on the name of the Lord. We recognize him for who he is as Lord. But these wicked liars, they don't recognize the lordship of God. And it shows in their words. I think your words are a real reflection as far as who's your Lord. You have accountability to the true Lord, or are you just kind of running your own show. Well, that, that's where these were. Well, in verse five we have the answer to David's prayer. Verse five: For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. God's people, true believers, are often described in the Psalms as poor and needy. So often they are those whom the wicked take advantage of, as they are vulnerable, uh, poor and needy uh, before the wicked. Now David has already spoken of those who are being oppressed as the godly and the faithful in verse 1. So I believe this is a continuation here of, of God's people who are described here as poor and needy. Well, God, in effect, interjects at this point that He will arise and rescue His people. When God says, I will arise, it means that He's going to move into action on behalf of His people. Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 33 10, Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. Now, God doesn't say exactly when or how He will do this, only that He will do it because of this, some commentators think that this ultimately looks forward to the kingdom, uh, when God's people will finally know consistent safety for which they long. Uh, David Gazik says, These destructive talkers spoke as they pleased, but they could not stop the Lord God from speaking as he pleased. In a wonderful and dramatic way, the Lord announced that he would act on behalf of the poor and needy victims of these proud and unstoppable talkers. Well, at some point, the Lord will intervene. <clears throat> the help, help Lord of verse 1 will ultimately be answered. By the way, verse 5 is reminiscent of what we have back in Exodus 2, 24. Uh, remember there, as God's people, the Hebrews, were under tremendous affliction in the land of Egypt. And it says, so God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what's interesting here is that the Hebrew people had been in Egypt for hundreds of years at this point, and they had been in cruel slavery for many of those years. And what I'm saying is that God's deliverance didn't come immediately, right? But it did come in due time in accordance with God's timetable, his purposes, and for his glory. In contrast to lying, deceptive words, of so many around him, David focused on the pure, trustworthy words of the Lord. People often cannot be trusted, but God can be. God has just spoken words of promise in verse 5 about coming deliverance, and now in verses 6 and 7, we have commentary on those words. Verse 6, in contrast to the wicked, deceitful, lying words of the two-faced liars are the words of the Lord. Verse 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. What a contrast. The word of the liars around him are described in terms of falsehoods, flattery, doublespeak, and arrogant speech. In contrast, God's words are totally wholesome, true, and pure. What a wonderful verse is Psalm twelve six. David is describing... The words of the Lord in superlative terms. He saw them as pure, without any error or untruthfulness. The description of of, uh, purified seven times emphasizes perfect purity and absolute trustworthiness to the highest degree possible. You see, seven in the Bible is consistently the number of completeness or perfection. The words of the Lord are perfect. They can't be any more pure, accurate, or trustworthy. Uh, ESV study Bible note here. To say that God's words are pure, refined, and purified is to insist that they have no dross of lies, flattery, or insincerity. God means what he says. His words are completely pure. And yes, I do realize that I misspelled means. Okay. This means that the word of the Lord can be trusted in every sense. I love this emphasis, not only in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 1.20. All the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. I mean, God gives you a promise, you can drive a stake down there. People tell you things, "Eh, who knows, maybe they're a little two-faced here, flattery, um, whatever. Psalm 18.30, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Verse 7, you shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them from this, time, from this generation forever. Now, there's a lot of debate among Bible scholars whether the them here in verse 7 refers back to the words of the Lord in verse 6 or to the poor and needy representing God's people back in verse 5 or perhaps to both. The truth is there is no consensus here. Right, And uh, people, uh, these scholars, they make all kinds of technical arguments for this view or that view, but there is no consensus. However, from the whole of Scripture, we can see that really both are true. Both are true. God will preserve his word, and he will preserve his people. Uh, Consider the people of God. Whether speaking of a godly remnant of Jews or believers who make up the church or believers in some other era, God always has a remnant of true believers. I mean, I'm sure the devil would like to eliminate all believers from the planet. It's even interesting after the rapture. I remember Dr. Whitcomb, my mentor, would say, you know, after the rapture, immediately he thought those two witnesses are going to show up in Jerusalem. Uh, and he says God's never left himself without a witness here, you know. And I think that's probably true. I mean, we always see God has his people. There's always a remnant, Hardest try as hard as he will, uh, Satan cannot eliminate. He cannot stamp out God's people. Well, that may well be what's in view here in Psalm 12, 7. And some argue very strongly that is what is in view because the whole psalm essentially has the concern about the wicked and how they are overwhelmingly having their way over God's people. And the psalm ends kind of on this same note in verse 8, saying the wicked prowl on every side. And yet God's promise is that they will be preserved. Well, yes, uh, God's promise abides. His word is sure, His people will be preserved. In every generation, they are in the place of representing God and His truth. On the other hand, the other view says that Psalm 12:7 is really a promise that God will preserve His word forever. And that, too, is consistent with many other scriptures. Uh, In interacting with last day's prophecy as found in the Old Testament and also giving new prophetic revelation, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Strong statement, my words aren't going anywhere. Now, earlier in Matthew 24, Jesus referenced the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and said it's going to be in place in the last days, because he says there, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, I think this has this a special message to those who will be living in the tribulation period. The word is still going to be there, Daniel's still going to be there. Uh, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. A very specific, targeted prophecy here. Note, Jesus assumes that the Bible, represented by Daniel's prophetic word, will still be preserved at this time. And then building on this, says his word will not pass away. There are many such correlations in the scriptures. The Bible is an inspired book, completely given without any error. And not only that, God has sovereignly preserved the truth of his word in the transmission of the text. There is absolutely no doctrine in question regarding the approximate 6,000 manuscripts uh, that we have uh, in the original languages. Uh, There is occasionally a question about whether a copyist misspelled a word, should it be spelled this way or that way, Uh, that kind of thing. But there is no teaching or doctrine in question at all. God has sovereignly inspired and preserved the truth of his Word. Interesting story, true story from history. Uh, History tells about a renowned atheist who lived in the uh, 1700s, born in the 1600s, lived in the 1700s too. Voltaire was his name. And he was a very aggressive antagonist against Christ and Christianity. He wrote many things uh, to undermine uh, the Bible and Jesus Christ. Once he said of Jesus Christ, curse the wretch, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand will destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. Boy, Putney's up pretty high, isn't he? He was. However, Voltaire was less than successful, shall we say. On his deathbed, a nurse who attended to him was reported to have said, For all the wealth in Europe, I would not see another atheist die. The physician, waiting up with Voltaire at his death, said that he cried out with utter desperation, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months to live. I don't have any idea why he didn't say i will give it all. Uh, But then he said, "I, I go to hell. Oh, Christ, oh, Jesus Christ. Boy, what a way to die. And then irony of ironies, Within 50 years of his death, the very house in which he once lived and wrote articles against Christianity was used by the Evangelical Society of Geneva as a storehouse for the printing of Bibles and gospel tracts. How's that for irony? Well, yeah, we know what the Bible says, right? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It's not going anywhere. God's going to preserve his word. The Bible shows both the preservation of his word and his people. So both are true. So no matter how you take Psalm twelve seven, you want to argue this way or that way, both are true. So, okay, just keep that in mind. And then to finish out the psalm, Psalm 12, 8, ends on this note. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Again, the New American Standard translates this, the wicked strut about on every side. Yes, for now, they are strutting their stuff. Their mouths are wide open, full of lies and deception, as they believe in their own lordship. But Psalm 12, 5 remains. At some point, God will arise in judgment, and he will set his people in the permanent realm of safety. They will indeed be preserved forever in the kingdom. This life is just a little snapshot. The full story will be told in eternity. We have it on God's word that he will ultimately preserve his people. His word is pure, as pure as can be. God's people will be preserved, as will his word. I thought this was kind of an interesting a little uh, cartoon, if you will. You probably can't read it from way back there. But uh, here you got the Christian walking you know, the way of eternal life here, uh, May we never care what men say of us so long as we walk in the light of God's word. And these people are simple-minded, bigot, going over the cliff, Bible-thumper, ignorant, Jesus-freak, you know, they're all going over the cliff. But the the true person of God is on the, the path to eternal life. Well, the words of the wicked do hurt. They do hurt. But the words of God trump all other words. God's words are true, and they give us hope and healing. Come what may, come what may, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. Amen. Let's stand and have our closing song.